0: And welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Simon Winchester, the author of, I think we can now pretty much say, countless best-selling books, from The Surgeon of Crowthorne* to The Crack at the Edge of the World. And his new book takes on a typically large and eclectic subject. It's called Land, and subtitled How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. Welcome, Simon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, this is a big subject you take on, but you start local, don't you? And you start personal. It's your own little plot of land with which you yes. begin it.
1: Was that the origin of the book itself? It, it really was. I mean, I had bought this land in a little town called Wassaic in New York State, about 120 miles north of New York City, When I came back from Hong Kong, I'd lived there for 13 years, working for The Guardian mainly. Then I decided, because I'm sort of a country bumpkin, that I'd prefer to live... I mean, I had a flat in the city, but mostly in the countryside. And that's indeed where I wrote The Surgeon of Crowthorne. But then eventually, the land surrounding the house was completely useless for anything because it was on the north face of a rather large mountain. It had a lot of trees, a lot of animals, a lot of little rivers, but you couldn't grow anything on it really. So I decided to leave and come up to where I am now, which is in the Berkshires or the Berkshires where I am in England, in western Massachusetts, where I've got a decent amount of flat land and then I have animals of various sorts. But I nonetheless, I sold the house down in West but kept the land. And I I visit it every few months and things, not least because I pay taxes on it. And I think, well, I better do something with this or at least enjoy it. And I do enjoy it. I mean, I'm not fashionable enough to believe in the ethos of this thing called forest bathing. But nonetheless, there's no doubt that going into these woods has a sort of therapeutic effect. And I enjoyed it. Anyway, so given that sometime about two, two and three years ago, I had just come back from spending a day wandering around in the forest and my wife was had been reading about the Enclosures Acts in Britain and she was talking about how, you know, 15th, 16th century people stopped, in many cases, owning common land and segmented into privately owned chunks of land and that caused a lot of people to move to cities or else to come across the sea to settle in places like America and Canada and so forth. And she said, this business of owning land is interesting, is it not? And I said, yes, not least because the people that used to inhabit the land we own down in Wassaic, the Mahican Indians, never had this concept of ownership. I mean, to them, you couldn't own land any more than you can own the ocean or own the atmosphere. And I thought, yes, that is a good subject to maybe get my teeth into. There was an extraordinarily... Definitive and good modern book by someone you'll probably know called Andrew Linklater, now dead sadly, who wrote a book called Owning the Earth. But it was very long, very dense, and a work of scholarship rather than what I would attempt to do, which is a somewhat, to use the modish word, somewhat more accessible book. So anyway, I convinced the editor at uh, in New York, and indeed the editor in London at HarperCollins. And so it was off to the races, and it was a fun book to do. It took me all around the world, and this, anyway, is the result. Yes, well, you still,
0: still could go all around the world. Now, just before we move on, I there's one thing to, to stick, and I won't do so relentlessly on the personal side of it, but you have been, without being intrusive, I would say probably a person of at least some means since, you know, the Surgeon of Crothorn was a success all those years ago. And I was very surprised that you hadn't, owned land until practically the millennium. I think it's 1999, isn't it, that you bought this? Why was that? You mean, why did I delay it? Because we're we're always told, get on the property ladder, get on the property ladder. Why did you not?
1: For a start, I didn't... I hadn't lived a settled life, essentially, since I left Britain. I mean, my whole career was as a foreign correspondent, so I was in... well, Belfast is hardly foreign, except in some ways. And then it was Washington and then it was Delhi and then it was New York and then it was Hong Kong and then it was East Africa. So um, I was never settled enough in, in England to really think about it. So it was, if you like, carelessness. Plus I'm a pretty shambolic kind of person and the idea of getting on the property ladder. I mean, I did when I was working for The Guardian in Belfast. I had bought a house in Newcastle upon Tyne for less money than the computer I'm talking to you now from. It was in High West Jasmine, next door to Bill Fever, who is currently very popular, for having written this new book about Lucian Freud. So um, we both spent about £3,000 on a house, and that was about the only time I really appeared on the property ladder. So, no, owning land was... I mean, I came from a pretty impoverished family, and my father and mother didn't never had land apart from sort of postage stamp of a garden in Rutland shortly before they retired and died. So, no, I never did it. Carelessness, lack of money and lack of settlement in Britain. In some ways, this gets towards
0: the book's main subject. I'm interested in what sort of emotional reaction you had to that business of suddenly having a piece of paper that said this, you know, 40 acres and a mule well, these these trees, this river, these rocks,
1: these are mine now. It had an, a very significant meaning for me because it was shortly thereafter that I became an American citizen. I haven't stopped being a British uh, subject, but I became—I took my citizenship um, oath on the afterdeck of a sailing ship in Boston Harbor—and felt, you know, imbued with a great sense of pride for doing that. And then to walk on this land and realize that I owned a chunk. Of the United States, and consequently was truly invested in this country, did give me pause. I must say, I was um, you know, I'm British, so I wasn't going to weep over it, but I nonetheless thought it was important and interesting. But nonetheless, going back to the original point, the early settlers had never owned it because they didn't believe in ownership. So how can I square this particular circle? What did I believe in, in terms of how much people should own, what they should do with it when they own it, and then the whole sort of contrasting philosophical views of people like Locke, who believed in owning and improving, and people like Rousseau, who believed that really you took the sort of proudhon view that all property is theft and that you shouldn't own things. So... um it was conflicting but in terms of sheer emotion i was enormously proud to own a bit of the country of which i had become a citizen and
0: that that idea that that animates the book that you know there are questions over whether land should be owned or can be owned i mean how far back does that go because you delve fascinatingly to me into the the history of how we started to have the idea that you know this field could belong to Thag or Zog or (laughs) choose your caveman or Bronze Age name here.
1: Yes, it's interesting you say Zog because I did a piece not so long ago on the Aryan nation in Idaho, people who implacably believe in white supremacy and who rail against the notion of Zog, which to them is the Zionist-oriented government, as they see it, of the United States, (laughs) but that's very much by the by. It's odd that you should have chosen that. Uh, Well, actually, yes, you do have a
0: chapter in which, which issues of Zionism... And land will indeed kind of inevitably yeah. come up, but um but so start at the beginning, if you will. Where, I mean, how do archaeologists and anthropologists see this this stage of human civilizational development?
1: Well, I suppose that the current belief is that uh, you've got your Bronze Age farmers who have learned now, have ceased being nomads. They've now got settled agriculture. They've learned how to dig into the earth, plant seeds and watch them sprout and grow and then create furrows and then furrows in a straight line and a feeling of um, proprietary not ownership but proprietary relationship to the furrows because they're your furrows, you made them, they're your crops so if you have theoretically two farmers who one of them was on a hillside and one of them is on the flat bottom land, one chap makes his furrows in a north-south direction. The chap on the hillside following the contours makes his in a, let's say, north west direction. And where they meet, you can say they, as it were, interfere with each other like ripples on a pond, but they plant a hedge or put in some stakes to mark out the point where one set of furrows ends and another set of furrows begins, where two proprietary arrangements are separate from one another. And that, in the Bronze Age, then, as far as archaeologists are concerned, and it relates to a a group called the Deveril rimbury people in Dorset and Wiltshire, what is now Dorset and Wiltshire, how they separated their lands and created what, in essence, were the first borders. But on the other hand, this can be looked at in a global sense as well. If you think of populations in, let's say, the Nile Valley or Mesopotamia or the Indus Valley or in China being like uh, penicillin spreading outwards. Where do the Arabs in the Nile Valley meet the Mesopotamians and the Indus, or the, rather the Tigris and the Euphrates? Where do they meet and first encounter each other and perhaps draw a barrier and you come to somewhere like Basra in the marshes of south uh, w- w- eastern Iraq? And um, th- that's where possibly the first international border was created. So the whole idea of borderlines is still a bit fuzzy, but there are, what, 317, I think, international borders around the world, with the oldest said to be that between Andorra and France, which is about 800, 900, maybe 1,000 years old. How they are delineated and marked out completely fascinates me. I mean, I could have written the entire book about borders, but I think that would have been so, so nerdy that no-one would be it at all. <laughs> I don't know. Um,
0: is is the sort of that movement that you've described you know, which obviously seems to go in lockstep with the development, obviously, of agriculture and fixed pastoralism and so
1: on. Is that the same the world over? It seems to be. Uh, If you look at China, uh, the Philippines, particularly where they have rice terraces and things like that, exactly the same. It may have been at slightly different times, but, um, yes, essentially to the extent that Bronze Age is recognised in most of the world... Then you see it in Eastern Africa, you see it in uh, South Africa. I'm not so sure about South America because I didn't do a great deal of research in Brazil and the big countries down there. But yes, as far as I know, the kind of thing that happened in Wiltshire happened in Wuhan as well. The idea that land is something you can't own
0: seems to be, as one goes through your book, which talks extensively and, and with a kind of admirable kind of global historical range about that that idea seems to be one that's associated with indigenous peoples in the you know United States and in New Zealand and in Australia and in and in Africa and that a sort of western idea of states is what says no no it doesn't work like that you know it, it's bound up with colonialism and imperialism and so forth is there a, a sort of understanding that effectively, you know, formalised property ownership is a sort of A or V hallmark of modernity and that, you know, it's pre-modern people who don't. I mean, does it automatically work that way, do you think?
1: Seems to be, and it seems that we, Europeans, are probably to blame for originating the idea I mean, England is the obvious candidate for that because of the whole notion of enclosures. I mean, we all know well from school, I'm sure, that the idea that in early modern England, anyway, common land, land was commonly held. Um, And you have a village in Yorkshire or wherever in the 11th, 12th, 13th century... And while the greater part of the land may supposedly be owned in few by a feudal lord who was given it for services to the king or whatever, in the the, the sort of recognisable sort of local aspect of this story, a village, the villagers would own all the land or would would have common usage of the land. And so houses would be surrounded by or would themselves surround some acreage on which all would graze their cattle or their pigs or their geese or raise turnips or carrots or wheat or whatever and that was how it was but as the 15th century early 16th century dawned so the realization was a born that this was not an efficient way to feed an ever-increasing population of people because the pigs would eat the turnips and the cows would trample over the wheat, how much better it would be if instead of the land being commonly owned, it was fenced off and privately owned and one person would keep his cattle there and another person would grow his turnips there. And so informally, without anyone's real permission, fences were put up and walls were created and hedges grown and that became de facto. But then in 1604 in Dorset, in Radipole, very close to where I went to school, the first formal Enclosure Act was passed and Parliament got involved and a notice was tacked to the church door saying that the common in the middle of Radipole is going to be segmented into privately owned parcels. If anyone objects, then please tell us. If not, then it will happen. And it did happen. And the consequences then were that... um, The dispossessed moved often, or stayed put and became very angry, and they went to the cities, and soon thereafter, of course, the Industrial Revolution tempted them to the cities as well, or else they ventured overseas and began the big diaspora of British people, English people, going around the world. So um, it really did all begin here, and the idea was transported to America by then, by the time America began itself and indeed the colonists up until 1776, the idea of private loan property was central to people's minds, not least because if you accept the immutability of land that, as they said in Guard With The Wind, land is the only thing worth working for, for, worth fighting for, worth dying for, because land is the only thing that lasts, then get yourself a hundred acres take it to the bank, say, this is my collateral, my security for a loan, and then I can buy a tractor or I can buy a motor car or a refrigerator or whatever. It's the centrepiece of capitalist economies. And so, as with so many things in the world, we, the British, are largely to blame.
0: Well, you say blame... I mean, I'm interested in your chapter on enclosure, which you which you link to what you might call kind of supercharged enclosure when talking about the highland clearances. But you say this is an area that remains in fierce contention and people kind of are sort of very much you know madly on one side of the issue or the other you know um but you seem to kind of tread a slightly delicate balance there i'm interested in where you come down do you think that enclosures were as you say you know the foundation of modern capitalism and therefore essentially you know an omelet that was made involved breaking a few eggs but without which we'd never have made the great leap into modernity or do you think they were a sort of iniquitous you know dispossession of the poor and um, creator of the inequalities that remain to this day?
1: I'm somewhat conflicted except oddly enough not in Scotland not so far as the clearance is concerned because as you rightly say they're sort of uber enclosures where the Duke of Sutherland and people like that turfed people out, burned them out, quite literally, and said that, um, you know, sheep are more profitable than people, that the price of wool is going up, so if we raise sheep, it's far better than getting the income from the niggardly rents of of crofters, so throw all the crofters out, or teach them how to fish, which of course they weren't any good at doing, and then bailed off and founded cities like Winnipeg and Manitoba, so disgusted were they with the behaviour of the Duke of Sutherland. So in Scotland, I mean, the cruelties are so evident, so palpable, and the the countryside is littered still, as I'm sure you know, with the ruins of broken-up crofts and smashed graveyards and empty churches and so forth, which are a testimony to an episode of pretty profound cruelty. Enclosure down in Britain, um, down in England, rather, uh, was equally iniquitous in its consequences but it wasn't carried out with quite the the venom that the duke who incidentally of course was an englishman and that's another reason why the scots are so ticked off by him and he has a statue probably the biggest statue in the united kingdom so you could see it for 10 miles (laughs) it's astonishing i was with my son there driving down from way up near Dunnet head and you could see this range of hills and on it i said rupert that that's a radio aerial he said "No, no it's not a radio aerial it is a man and indeed it was it was it was the Duke of Sutherland's memorial, which they try and blow up from time to time, but it's made so sturdily by these Victorian engineers that it's resisted all attempts. Do you think they anticipated that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they did. No, they were just merely incredibly grandiloquent in their ambitions. Now, I think you quote Churchill to great effect, saying
0: that you know land is a is a particular type of property. You know, I mean, almost a sort of uh, type of property, which gives it a sort of bit of a linchpin role in capitalism. Is it possible to conceive of anything like a modern economy that wouldn't rest on the idea that you can own property?
1: No, not really. Not 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 a, not a, a capitalist economy. No, there's nothing as foundational. I mean, that sounds a bit of a, a tautology, really, as 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 land, except for this new phenomenon. I've had to put a caveat in the book, I hope it's in the English edition as well as in the American edition, saying the immutability of land, and consequently it's um, appropriate to be foundational, is no longer true because of climate change and because of sea level rise. And so land is actually, for the first time in human history anyway, being currently nibbled away at, but soon, if we believe in climate change, we believe in sea level rise, is going to be gnawed away. And this is showing people now, I mean, let us say there are land investors in Kiribati and Vanuatu and Tuvalu and indeed in Bangladesh. They would find themselves now hard-pressed to claim that land could possibly now be, and henceforward, the foundation of their economies because it's disappearing at an astonishing rate. And uh, we all know, I think, that New Zealand has offered refugee status to people from Kiribati, the old Gilbert Islands, that are going to lose their land and their homes and their property and their investments and their foundational basis for their economy because the sea is taking it. In the United States here, I think 13,000 acres, a trivial amount, has been nibbled away at in the last decade. But it's coming. It's coming to a drawing room near you that (laughs) the foundation of capitalism is being eroded away by the sea.
0: Well, you, you suggest which seems quite quite optimistic to me that that the idea that you know land is no longer fixed might cause us to rethink our relationship to it in a more you know holistic or friendly or communitarian way Isn't it more likely that as there's less of it, the opposite will apply according to the law of supply and demand?
1: Well, and I think I do um, say that in a sentence, I hope it remained, I believe it did actually, and say yes, I mean the counterfactual, the counterintuitive argument is of course that we may cherish it more, we may regard it as our mother rather more, we may think our attitudes towards it um, more uh, coherently, but nonetheless it'll become more valuable. It is instructive. Coincidental, I think, that the big, big landowners in this country tend to own land not on the coastlines that is disappearing, but right in the centre. So Ted Turner and John Malone, who are big television executives, I'm sure you'll be familiar with Ted Turner, CNN own most of their land in Nebraska, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, those sorts of states, and own very little in Virginia and the Carolinas, Florida or California. And that may well be the case in Britain too. I think the Duke of Bucleus, his um, biggest landowner other than the Queen and the Church of England in Britain, owns most of his land well away from the sea. Not that he was prescient, I don't think, and he had no idea when he started acquiring his land that sea level rise would occur. But nonetheless... Prudent businessmen that they were, the Bouclues—they, their land will be safe for a long time to come. But nonetheless, it is—at least in sort of tree-hugging states like where I live in the East—it is changing people's attitudes to land ownership, and we are getting a proliferation of these things called uh, community land trusts and um, conservation commissions. And indeed, the land that I own. In uh, this little town of Wassaic in New York State, I'm allowed to give, and I do give, uh, five acres a year to the Dutchess County Land Conservation Group, I think it's called, so that it's, it passes out of my hands, but it'll mean it'll never, in perpetuity, it'll never be developed, never ruined, it'll remain pristine forest, which all may enjoy. And that opens up a whole other um, kind of worms about the whole. Set of laws relating to trespass, but maybe you will or will not want to talk about that. But yes, our attitudes, our chain, are changing. Well, I, I think the the trespass issue is an interesting one
0: because, as you say, you know, in the states, there's very much you know, kind of twines into those um, Second Amendment rights as well. That idea that if someone puts their foot on your property, they're apt to get a you know, backside full of buckshot at at, at best. And yet, as you say, that doesn't seem to be a sort of cultural universal at all.
1: Not at all. And, and indeed, in particularly dear old liberal-minded progressive Scandinavia, the concept of, and I'm sure I've got the pronunciation wrong, all men's rights extends to the right, the absolute inherent inalienable right, for anyone to walk on any land anywhere, providing you behave yourself. I mean, you can't... Let yourself into someone's kitchen and sit down and have a cup of coffee unless invited. And similarly, you can't walk into their vegetable garden. But if my 123 acres was in Sweden, anyone can go there. They can walk their dog, they can ride their bicycle, they can sunbathe. They can't set off forest fires, but providing they behave according to a common sense set of rules, they can use it. And this applies to an extent, and you'll be more familiar than I with this, in England and to a much greater extent even, thanks to the semi-independent Scottish government in Scotland. And I saw a lot of a extraordinarily nice, fairly big landowner called Michael Wigan, who lives up near Helmsdale in Sutherland, oddly enough, where most of the most brutal clearances occurred back in the early 19th century. And he has 22,000 acres, which he raises deer and cattle and it's fishing and he has sheep and various other crops and things. But if he sees hikers walking across it, that's the law. And he thinks it's absolutely admirable that they should enjoy the land as much as he does. And I'm entirely in favour of that. And yet in Texas, as you rightly said, uh, you said backside full of buckshot, it's more likely in Texas you get your head blown off (laughs) if you go, go into someone's land. So Texas is... Pretty dangerous country as far as trespass is concerned.
0: How much do you think, I mean, speaking of the sort of culture of America and land, you'll presumably have a slightly different view on it. I mean, maybe see it more clearly and more, you know, vividly because it's unfamiliar as a Brit. I mean, I mean I'm thinking of, you know, our other countryman, sort of Jonathan Rabin up in the Pacific Northwest, who again seems to be sort of more alive to the geography of the Pacific Northwest than, you know, <laughs> almost any native-born American.
1: Yes, I mean, i that's very interesting. I mean, Jonathan, I haven't communicated with him for some long time, but you're absolutely right. I mean, his, his books about the, the prairies and so forth, to my way of thinking, are rather better than most Americans' books on their own country. And it's interesting, and I don't want to sound too precious and pretentious here, but I remember... I went to school in Dorset. I remember my geography teacher, a chap called Harold Mann. He set us all at 11 years old to write an essay, 500 words, 800 words, I forget how long, on the importance of, and here comes what's going to sound awfully pretentious, the importance of the Hudson-Mohawk gap. Now, you look on a map and you see the Hudson River spearing north-south, the Mohawk joining it, going east-west. It, that gap, that Topographical gap allowed goods from the Great Lakes to come down to the sea and to be disgorged from the port that is now New York City. So the Hudson Mohawk Gap is a geographical entity which led to the birth of New York as being America's major East Coast port. You say the Hudson Mohawk Gap to any American today, they wouldn't have the foggiest idea what you're talking about. And um, the ignorance of Americans over their own geography, let alone the world's geography, is staggering. Geography is no longer taught in this country. It falls under the umbrella of something called uh, social studies or something. And yet I find it incredibly ironic that you have the glossiest of all geographical magazines, the yellow-bordered National Geographic magazine, thudding through the letterboxes of millions of Americans every year... All of whom are more geographically illiterate than almost anyone else on the planet.
0: Well, I mean, to, to confess my own ignorance, I was very surprised to read of how relatively recently, in your early chapters, you know, we actually knew how much land there was and, you know, where it all was and what shape it all was. I mean, yes. it, you know, one of these forgotten characters, I'd never heard of Friedrich von Struve. And yet he was coming. You know, tell us about von Struve and what he did for us. A,
1: a lovely man um, who uh, lived in what was then Russian Estonia. He was a surveyor, and we're talking about the beginning of the 19th century. He conceived this idea that to know the, if you're going to map the world, you need to know how big the world is exactly. And the last real estimate was what Eratosthenes or someone who measured the diameter and consequently the circumference of the world by measuring the sun's angle of incidence falling in wells in Alexandria in Egypt and then again down near Aswan. And he got a pretty good figure, you know, 40,000 kilometres, there, whatever it was in those days, cubits or something. So von Struver said, I'm going to find out by drawing a meridian, 25 degrees, I think, east of Greenwich, and um, measuring it exactly. And this involved using chains and theodolites The the longer the chain, the more accurate your ultimate result. And so it took them the better part of 40 years to contrive to measure from Hammerfest in northern Norway down to the shores of the the Black Sea near Odessa. Um, And it's called the Struve Geodetic Arc. And the measuring points, the triangles, because this all had to be done by the principle of triangulation, that the triangulation points were fixed, usually cement obelisks or iron bars set into the rocks, and they still exist. And so a few years ago, after much lobbying by the ten countries through which this arc progressed, and I went to see them in Latvia, they are now a United Nations or um, UNESCO heritage site. And you can see them. I mean, the points are buried in the forest, but... You get you get directions, and suddenly there's this obelisk in the middle of the forest that enabled Struve to calculate the precise diameter of the planet, and which he got. Now, of course, we know it through satellite measurements, but he got it to within something like a kilometer, which is pretty jolly good. So there was that, and then there was another character that I wrote about called Albrecht Penck, who was Swiss, I believe, and he proposed that the entire planet now we know its size, be mapped to the scale of one to a million, and such that every country would produce maps that looked, had the same colours, the same contours, all done in the English language and the same typeface, and they'd all have a projection such if you sellotape them all together, you would form a globe a millionth the size of the planet, it be about the size of a large house. And they started in the 1890s, and they interrupted by war, one and two, and by the time of the 1950s or 60s, um, I think the, the entire land surface of the world would require about 880 maps. They had done about 800 of them. So it was nearly completed. But then the energy started to dissipate and finally... Under the control of the United Nations, there was a brief conference held in, I think, Bangkok in 1987 or so, and they decided to abandon it. And so they did, just shy of completing the whole thing. And for years I was searching for, is there a complete set of these beautiful, beautiful sheets? And I was on a book tour for an earlier book about three or four years ago, and the venue was in Milwaukee, and it was in a map library. And I went in, and I thought the map curator, a woman... Called Marcy Bidney was giving me a weird look, and I said, "This is an amazing library of maps, do you?" she said, "Yes, we do and I said, "You mean you've got them? Yes, we do. come here, and she knew I had been looking and opened all these wonderful map cabinets, and there, in pristine condition, were the eight hundred and fifty sheets of the world, almost all of the world as done by the international map of the world, the legacy of another forgotten man, Albrecht Penck. That's extraordinary.
0: And did, I mean, you describe the the sort of international cooperation and lack of it and, you know, that that obviously, you know, because of the post-war period, you know, you had real trouble. I mean, there was a moment when Stalin got going and decided these maps were going to be made or I think something similar happened in China. But were they sort of mass-printed? when these sheets were made, or were there just very few copies around?
1: Very few copies around, and and, and people in individual countries, I'm sure the British Isles, their maps will be somewhere, probably in the British Library or somewhere. I think it was initially headquartered in Southampton, the effort, where, of course, I believe today the British Ordnance Survey still has its headquarters. So probably down in the library there, there'll be some IMW sheets, But collectors, I'm a stamp collector, I'm not really a map collector, but but map collectors, there will be a few collections, but a pristine... It it passed into the hands of the American Geographical Society in the early 20th century, I think. Not the National Geographical Society, but the American Geographical Society. But as the interest in geography diminished in America so did the importance of the AGS that went from rather spectacular headquarters on Park Avenue in New York to a brownstone in New York and then to two rooms in a brownstone and um, an elderly secretary and virtually no members and they had no room and it turns out that they sent them to Milwaukee who was more than happy under the auspices of the University of Wisconsin, to look after them. So Marcy Bidney is the go-to lady who has control of these wonderful, wonderful maps. Well, that's that's very good to know. I mean, one of the sort of
0: weird ironies of that is that, as if I understood your account of it right, what sort of made them slightly redundant or superseded them or overtook them
1: was aviation maps. Yes. And, and so the effort... Suddenly, the... I think it was the International Civil Aviation Organisation realised that because planes were flying hither and yon over the world, a a new map of the world needed to be created at the same scale, which would show on every sheet the highest altitude of a mountain or a range or whatever, so that a plane wouldn't fly into it. And so these ICAO maps, which are a variety of scales, but many of them at one to a million, suddenly became an urgent necessity... And all planes, indeed, if you sit in the cockpit of any plane today, you'll find they have these published by a company, I think, called Jefferson. So they're all there. But the effort to produce those overlapped with the effort to produce, because an aeroplane pilot doesn't mean necessarily need to know the location of churches and rivers and forests. He just wants to know where not to fly because he'll bump into it. And I remember vividly the uh, air traffic controllers' strike in America in the 1980s. I had to get um, from, where was it, somewhere in eastern Wyoming to Jackson Hole. And uh, so I took an air taxi. And the pilot, presumably have these charts, and so he was droning along over the wheat fields of the flatlands of eastern Wyoming at, I think, 12,000 feet. And um, I was idly... Looking at one of these maps, I was sitting beside him and I noticed it said the Tetons are ahead and they're 13,800 feet and we're at 12,000. So I'm thinking, should I, does the pilot know? And I looked over, he was fast asleep. Uh. So I, I nudged him and he woke up and I said, oh, excuse me. And he said, oh my God, I'm terribly sorry, I'm really tired. Went up to 15,000 feet and we zoomed over the top. Well, being able to read maps does
0: have some uses, obviously. Some occasional uses. <laughs> you know, it's often said that that you know you should buy land because they're not making any more of it, but you do have a chapter on the one place where where they are actively, constantly making more of it, i.e., Holland. How does the business of reclaiming or creating your land out of the North Atlantic affect their attitudes to?
1: to land ownership and property rights? Very interesting. I think the, the, the man Cornelis Lely, another of these forgotten individuals, in his case in the 1920s and 30s, blocked off the Zayda and turned it into the islemeer so built a 25-mile-long barrier to stop the North Sea from invading Holland. And then in the south of the islemeer decided that they would um, create polders, create new land... And so to the east of Amsterdam, they decided that they would create something with the somewhat bizarre and cartoonish name of Flavoland and about a million acres. So they put cofferdams around it and six enormous pumps. And for years, starting, I think, in the 1960s, it started pumping the water out. And slowly, ever so slowly, land began to appear or mud began to appear, sea bottom began to appear. And once it was moderately established, they would fly aeroplanes over it and seed it with reeds, and then they would set fire to the reeds so that they would turn into ash, and then they'd more reeds, more ash, more reeds, more ash. And then once that was established, sort of eight inches of ash, they would take aeroplanes and and seed it with grass and rushes and various odds and ends like that, and ultimately you would get soil, and then soil thick enough and firm enough that you could walk on it and then drives tractors onto it, and then track-laying vehicles. And you would lay roads and delineate fields and create the basis of a city and electrical cables and all that, water mains and so forth, and would say, right, this is land which has never belonged to anybody, but now it's open for business. We can invite people to, not to own it at first, they can rent it, but if they improve it in a Lockean way, they get the bounty from it, then they can can buy it. So they advertised in the Rotterdam and Amsterdam and Hague newspapers, we've got a million acres segmented into 60-acre parcels, and you can apply to rent it from us, the government. The only thing is that we are going to make sure that Flavoland, once properly populated, has the same demographic mix as the rest of the Netherlands. So you can send in your applications and we will choose the successful ones on the basis that 30% must be Catholic, 30% Protestant, 30% Dutch Reformed Church, 10% other. And extraordinarily, it's worked. And so you've got a capital city, Lelystad, named after Cornelius Lely, and you've got farms, and most of them now, because they were given away in the 1980s, early 1990s, are now owned by their occupants and are producing Heaps of food of various types. There are cattle and sheep and motorways and railway lines and, and wind-generating um, things all round the coast. Probably one of the most boring places in the world, but nonetheless it works impeccably well. And the lovely thing about it is that there's never been any grief because the land wasn't stolen from anyone, it wasn't purloined, it wasn't fought over. It's land born from the sea without any argument from anyone. But, of course global warming's coming along. So who knows that it may not be submerged again after a while. Your book, at least certainly judging by the the closing chapter, does
0: lean at least romantically towards the idea that, you know, we should rethink our attitudes to land ownership. If that happens, is that kaput for the whole Westphalian system of state sovereignty? I mean, will there, there be a you know, if we do change our attitudes to land and land ownership and delineation of borders,
1: you know, that might make us
0: rethink not just capitalism, but the whole
1: system of nation states, isn't it? Well, I realise I'm talking to a spectator audience, so I have to be careful. I'm not going to advocate world government or anything like that. <laughs> but I, think, I think, think things will change inevitably in which direction they will go. I'm not certain, but as I mentioned earlier, 317 national borders, however many nation states, some of them are already beginning to disappear, like the Pacific Islands, like Bangladesh and so forth. So there are changes are coming. And as I say in this, um, obviously misquoting or whatever the book was, the go-between, the future is a foreign country. They will do things differently there. So I think as bland, the basis for everything in more ways than one, Our attitude to it is changing, so changes are coming. What those changes will be, I have no idea, but change is on the horizon, if indeed there are any horizons left made of land. Simon Winchester, thank you very much indeed.
0: Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift Voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.